to Daniel chapter 7. I would like to begin by reading from verses 7 through verse 18. Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. After this I saw, a, saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, thousands, a thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, and then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven, uh, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came, he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory. And a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So last time we were talking about verses uh, 9 through uh, 10, 9 and 10. And then verses 13 and 14 as we discussed the, uh, the Ancient of Days. And then we talked about the Son of Man. And what we saw last time concerning the Son of Man was that our Lord Jesus Christ took this uh, to himself as his primary, uh, primary self-designation. This was the title that he most, on, most often applied to himself. And we saw that he used this to define what his real ministry would be, what his real person and work would be about. We saw that he uses this term, the Son of Man, to define himself as the suffering Savior and also as the one who will return in great triumph at the end of the world. And so he uses those things to define himself. Now, what I would like to do this evening is to turn back to this portion of the Son of Man because we didn't look at what it actually says about him. We just talked about the Son of Man. But what does Daniel 7 actually say about him? Well, it says, With the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, 
And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so here he is, this being on, on a cloud. And here is where the interpretive controversy uh, really begins. Uh, most everyone agrees that the first beast is Babylon, that the second beast is Persia, that the third beast is Greece. And now we come to this scene where we have the Son of Man. He is clearly connected with the fourth beast. And this is where we go into uh, two very uh, completely opposite directions of interpretation. And let me try to explain to you why we have this happen at this particular point uh, in Daniel. The question is, what is this event that we've just read, and when does it happen? Now, for futurists or dispensationalists, which is, as I've mentioned before, it is the majority view in uh, evangelical circles in the United States, so this will be the majority view. Beginning in verse 13, we skip from a series of consecutive kingdoms in Daniel's day to a fourth kingdom, kingdom which is in the far distant future, one that still has not come on the world scene. It is still future for us tonight as we stand here and look at the world history. The scene in verse 13 is the second coming of Christ as he returns to earth to begin his reign as king, as he, as he appears in the clouds in his second coming. The kingdom of Jesus has not yet begun. It will be inaugurated at a future point in time. None of Daniel 7 concerning the fourth beast and the son of man has happened yet. This is a general statement that includes the, the complex of future events that would include the rapture, great tribulation, the visible return of Christ, the millennial kingdom, a time of final conflict, final judgment of the world, and then the, the, uh, and then the days of the new heavens and the new earth. All of that would happen uh, in the future. And this, these things that are being referred to about the Son of Man in Daniel 7 have not happened yet in history. It's all future. So in sequence of time, we have kingdom number one, and as there's some hundreds of years, kingdom number two, kingdom number three, and then the, the, from this particular view, there's going to be a period of time before kingdom four comes. And it is, it is in this period of time in, in, in our history, in human history, that also Christ, which is the kingdom five, that, that Christ's kingdom will begin. But it does not, this is where we live today, and this is all future. It hasn't happened yet. So let me, let me ask the question, why? Do they say that? Why do people say that? And it's for two reasons. It is because when Christ comes into the world, we know this because we can look at Christ's life, his ministry. And when we look at what ha actually happened back uh, when Jesus Christ is born, he lives in this world, uh, he is crucified, he is raised from the dead. What we see is Israel rejects Christ as their king. And because promises to Israel cannot be fulfilled in the church. You know, we spent several weeks talking about the relationship between Israel and the church. And we, we, I, I hope we convinced you that, that 
though that Israel and the church are one people, that they are a united people, that they're not a separate people with separate futures and separate relationships to God. I hope we convinced you of that. Uh, but according to this view, promises to Israel were not fulfilled. Israel rejected her king. Israel did not enter into uh, a, a, the promised days of glory and a great kingdom and prominence in the world. That didn't happen. And so, and so it, it, it couldn't have happened that the events that we're talking about here in Daniel, they can't have happened right here. Because we know that didn't happen when Christ came into the world. It must still be future. And then one of the things we're going to talk about in just the next few minutes is, did Christ become king at his first coming? Did he become a king at his first coming? Now, the alternative view is, of course, that kingdom four, and this is what I'm going to present to you as being correct, uh, is Rome that it comes immediately after the third kingdom. There's no break in time there. There's no parenthesis. This, by the way, is called the great parenthesis by dispensationalists. It's, a, it's described as a period of time that the prophets didn't see and the prophets didn't talk about, that this whole church age that you and I live in are something that the Old Testament prophets weren't aware of. They didn't see that. And, and it, it was a great parenthesis in the prophetic Old Testament scriptures that, that the prophets didn't realize that was going to be this age in between. And, of course, this is an unknown period of time because we're still in this period of time. I'm going to suggest to you and try to prove to you that um, Rome is the fourth kingdom and that when our Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world in his first coming during the days of Rome, in around A.D. 0, maybe about 3 or 4 B.C. to about 27 or 28 A.D. was when Christ was probably here on this earth. That, that, is, when, uh, that is when the fifth kingdom is actually begins and Christ does, in fact, become a king. Now, if you would turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 for just a second, let me just remind you just very quickly about the issue of Israel and the church. Are we or are we not connected with, with, the, with Israel, we as New Testament Christians, New Covenant Christians? And so I want to point this out to you in uh, Ephesians 2 as just being uh, one example. We gave many and talked about this at length. Let me just say, bring this to your attention just very quickly for any of you that were not here uh, on Wednesday night when we talked about this passage. Ephesians 2.11 Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And so Gentile believers, before they became Christians, Paul says, this is what was true about you. You were separated from the Messiah. You were alienated, and that's the same kind of word that we use when we're always talking about illegal aliens in this country. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That is, you had no part in that nation. You were not a citizen of that nation. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. And so when God made promises to Adam and Noah 
and Moses and Abraham and David. Those things didn't have anything to do with you as a Gentile person. You had no contact with those things at all. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so been brought near to what? They've been brought near to the Messiah, to the commonwealth of Israel, to the, to the covenants of promise. He goes on to say in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And who are the both? Jew and Gentile have been made one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And then skipping down to verse uh, 19, just in case we didn't get it, what we've been brought near to, he says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer strangers from the covenants of promise. You're no longer aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And so Gentiles had been brought in complete union with all of those things that they were separated from when they were uh, Gentile unbelievers before they came to believe in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the idea that the church and its promises and its fulfillments of God's promises are, are divorced from Israel, that they're separated from Israel, is just something that uh, the Scriptures will not uh, support. And so just moving on, any questions about that at all? We'll move on to the second question, which is, is Jesus a king? Did Jesus become king when he came to this earth? Now, why would anyone say that he did not become king? Let me just ask you. Why would somebody say Jesus did not become king when he came into this world? Right, because... He didn't overthrow the Roman government. He didn't sit on David's throne. He didn't become the civil government. He didn't command the armies. He didn't collect the taxes. He didn't set the laws. He didn't do any of those things that are associated with, with government, with civil society. He didn't do those things in his first coming. And because he did not take up political and military and governmental rule, he did not sit on a, a throne in a palace, he did not control the police or the army, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and so he didn't do any of those things. And so the conclusion by many is, is that when Christ came into this world, we know that Israel rejected their king, right? Right at his crucifixion. They were asked, do you want me to release this man who is the king of the Jews? And what do they say? They say, give us Barabbas. We don't want anything to do with this man. And so it is clear that Israel rejects uh, Jesus Christ as being their Messiah and as being their king, though we know uh, from the scriptures that he was, in fact, uh, the rightful king rightful by his descent from David, by his family lines, which the Gospels take great, go to great pains to explain to us how, how his family goes back to David and how he is the rightful king. But obviously he did not sit on David's throne and Jerusalem and rule the nation. And so the question is, was he really a king? Did he prove himself to be a king? Did he 
enter into his kingdom at his first coming. So I, I hope that the question is kind of obvious that that is the issue. And so what I'm going to try to show you in the next few minutes is that Christ did, in fact, become king and that the scriptures tell us, in fact, that he did. No more should it be expected that the Messiah would be a king after David's model than he would have been a prophet on the same level as Moses or a priest on the same level as the Levitical priesthood. And so we shouldn't have the expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes into this world as our prophet, priest, and king, we shouldn't have the expectation that he would be a king just like David when we never think that he was going to be a priest like the Levitical priesthood. And we never think that he was going to be a prophet like the Old Testament prophets who spoke uh, in, in things that they barely understood. We understand, we don't expect those things to ever be. And yet, for some reason, we want to think that our Lord Jesus Christ would be a king just like David. I would suggest that we should not expect that he would do that. No more did he need David's throne or the outward trappings of Jewish royalty to show himself to be king then he needed the temple or the altar to make his priestly sacrifice or to prove himself a priest. He didn't need to have access to the temple, which he, he didn't have access to go into the temple as a priest. But he didn't need that to be our priest. And he no more needs David's literal throne in a building to sit upon to prove himself to be king than he needed the temple to prove himself to be our great high priest. In his person and work, he stands immeasurably higher than any of the ancient prototypes, whether it be prophet, priest, or king. None of them were more than a very faint shadow of what our Lord Jesus Christ would be as prophet, priest, and king. And it has always been interesting that uh, we have this fixation on David's throne, sitting in a building, dealing with the Putins or the Trumps, of the world. That's the, the picture that we have. And, and I think that uh, we should never think that Christ would be in such a position. Many say that at some point, Christ must sit on a literal earthly throne in Jerusalem. And this idea is what drives this gap, this great parenthesis, and looking for a future day for Christ to come and to become king. So does that all that make sense, that, that picture? Okay. What does it mean for Christ to have David's throne? That he has David's throne and kingdom meant that he, like David, would bring deliverance, safety, and blessing to God's people. But he would do to the full what David could only partially and imperfectly do. David had no power over the hearts of his people. But King Jesus brings safety and blessing to his people, both body and soul. And so our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't only rule in providence to help our society uh, advance and for us to have our needs met, like to have safety from our enemies or to have food on the table. 
which is what David was doing for God's people as he became king and as the nation uh, became uh, more influential and more powerful, more independent under David's reign. Our Lord Jesus Christ rules uh, among his people to bring about good for them, both in our real life, in this physical world, but also to bring about blessing and safety to our souls and in, in the spiritual world. His universal kingdom of necessity must be different from David's. His spiritual kingdom must of necessity be different from David, for he rules not just externally, but also in the hearts of men. His kingdom is spiritual, heavenly, and eternal. Look with me at John 18, 36. John 18, 36, where Christ makes this statement about his kingdom. He's before Pilate. There's all this, there's all this going around about him having claimed to be the king of the Jews. And in verse 36, Jesus makes this comment about this. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And so what Jesus is saying is, if my kingdom was a kingdom that had to do with sitting on a throne in a palace, if my kingdom had to do with armies and with politics and with all of those uh, those functions of government and rule, then my disciples would be fighting for me not to have been taken by the Jews. But he says that my kingdom is not like that. My kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. It is not of this world. The word there, world, is the word cosmos, and it means uh, how things are ordered or the system of this world or the arrangement that this world is in. He says my kingdom is not like the arrangement, the order, the system that kingdoms of this world have. It is different from that. And you misunderstand me if you think my kingdom, and he's speaking to Pilate, is like your kingdom. And so Christ himself tells us that we should not have expected this kind of kingdom to be brought about when his kingdom is established in the world. I would suggest to you that a kingdom that had a more literal conformity to that of David's would be one of less conformity to the promise of the Old Testament prophets about what Christ would do and what God's purpose for him would be in the world. Jesus of Nazareth needed no outward enthronement to possess David's throne, just as he needed no physical temple to perform his sacrifice for sin, or to perform his priestly intercession. He possessed from the first the powers of the kingdom, and he proved that he possessed them. So how did he prove that he possessed the power of the kingdom? In every word that he spoke with authority, for example, you have heard it said, but I say, you know who's saying that? That's a king speaking. That is the Lord speaking. Or, truly, truly, I say to you, and then he says, whatever. That is the king making pronouncement. Look at Matthew 7. 
28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, he's in his public ministry, he's teaching the people. And they recognize this man speaks as one who has authority when he speaks, authority in what he is saying. Look over at Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 32. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out in every place in the surrounding region. And so they recognize that he is speaking with authority, that he's teaching with authority. And then this one cries out, who was demon-possessed, and the Lord Jesus Christ commands the demon to come out. And the people are amazed because even the demons recognize the authority and power of this one that is speaking. I suggest to you, in every word he spoke, he proved that he was king. In every work of deliverance that he performed, In every act of mercy and forgiveness, who is it in the physical world of government that can pardon? It is, of course, in the United States, one of the rights of the President of the United States. But it is kings that have that right, the authority to forgive. Our Lord Jesus Christ exercises that kingly authority. With kingly power, he commanded the elements of nature. He turns the water to wine. He multiplies the fish and the loaves. He walks on the water. The wind and the waves obey him when he speaks uh, to the mighty tempest. Disease and infirmity are subject to his command. He commands even the dead, and the dead obey. These are the signs of his royalty, eclipsing in every way the glory of David and Solomon. Turn with me to one last passage, 2 Corinthians 3. Because I want to show you something that I think is very important to what our expectations should be. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Our expectations should be concerning Christ and his kingdom. Verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, and that is going to be what now? What is, the, what is the ministry that was carved in letters of stone? That's the Old Testament. That is the giving of the law. God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. 
If those, if those, if that ministry of death carved in letters, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that is, in the Old Covenant, the ministry of righteousness, that is, the New Covenant, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory, that is, the Old Covenant, and all the things connected with the Old Covenant, indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that, has surpass, that surpasses it, that is, in Christ and the new covenant. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that will what is permanent have glory. And so here's the point that Paul is making in 2 Corinthians 3. All those Old Testament things had glory. It was glorious, the temple. It was glorious, the golden lamps lampstand, the, the golden table, the altars that stood in front of the tabernacle and later the temple. It was glorious to priesthood and how they dressed, and especially the way the high priest uh, dressed on the Day of Atonement. He, he dressed in elaborate garments. Uh, there, there was glory and beauty to all of that, all, all of that Old Testament stuff and things and religion and the practices and everything about it was full of glory. It was glorious. And what Paul is saying is, it has absolutely no glory. That's the actual words he uses. No glory in comparison with what has come in Christ and in the new covenant and new covenant things. That glory has completely passed away. So here's the question that I want to ask relative to Christ and his kingship. Why would we think that the Lord Jesus Christ who has ascended to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the glory on high and is going to return to this world someday to bring about a new heavens and a new earth. And we read about it in, in uh, the last two chapters of Revelation, how that beautiful city, New Jerusalem, is going to come down into this glorious, glorious uh, place. How in the world will we ever expect that our Lord Jesus Christ is going to back all the way up to pitiful, sad little David and his little throne and his little palace and sit on it. And somehow, by doing that, he is going to establish himself as the great king. I would suggest to you that Paul would say, you're not thinking right if you're thinking in those terms because those things that have no glory, those things that had glory, verses 10 and 11, indeed, in this case, what once had glory, that was David, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. And so I would suggest to you that what we see in, as God reveals himself and as we move through time is we see a progression of things going from glory to more glory to more glory to the glorious church and then even more glory than that that will, co that will come about when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. And we don't see... Uh, any repeating of those former things that have been eclipsed uh, and are now only shadow and symbol. And so I would suggest to you that we shouldn't expect that Christ would come, excuse me, would come back 
and be a king uh, like the rulers of this world in a political sense, that we shouldn't expect that he would do that and that he doesn't need that to prove that he is, in fact, Israel's king. If we have any comments about that, I'm going to say just a few things more, but we're going to move back towards Daniel uh, in just a second. Any, any comments about that? Is, have I convinced you that we don't need for the Lord Jesus Christ to demote himself to David's literal throne to show himself to be king? Uh, I hope that we would, would not have that expectation uh, in the future uh, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Right. I would suggest that if in the future days, just in the history of this world, if like tomorrow, and there are people in Israel right now, by, by the way, I hope you realize there are people in Israel right now that if they could get away with it, they would tear the uh, mosque, uh, they would tear the Dome of the Rock down, and they would rebuild the temple on, on that site and start uh, animal sacrifice, and they would do it right this minute. There are people in Israel right now that are scheming as we speak to do exactly that. I would suggest to you that if someone ever rebuilds a temple in Jerusalem and if they begin to have animal sacrifices again, it is a denial of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a denial of his once forever sacrifice for sin. It is a denial of the beautiful temple that our Lord Jesus Christ is building not with stones but with living stones as he builds his church, and that every one of us is a stone in that great temple that our Lord Jesus Christ is building. And it is going to be beautiful, and it is beautiful and has splendor that can never be matched by any building in this world. And it would be a denial of Christ for anyone to build a temple and to reinstitute sacrifices. And we see in Revelation chapter 20 and 21 at the end of the book, when we see the new Jerusalem coming down, which is a description of the church, and we see all those beautiful stones uh, uh, that are connected with that city, and it's sparkling and dazzling and streets of gold, and it's just this incredible, almost gaudy uh, image there that John sees in this vision as he sees the church. Uh, that is just a, a, a way of, of, of John trying to say to us that God through John trying to reveal to us that the church of our Lord Jesus Christ is beautiful and multifaceted. And every way you turn it, it sparkles and it is wonderful. And that's what he's saying there in Revelation as he describes the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ coming down into the new heavens and the new earth. It is the beauty of the church and the people that make it up. So... That, that is right. Exactly. Exactly. And whatever difference there is between those two things, that's the difference in the glory of them. Exactly. I think that I'll give you a short answer of what could be uh, is very actually an interesting answer. Daniel, if you'll remember, 
becomes the head, the chief of the Magi in Babylon. That's, that's one of the jobs that he is given after he interprets dreams for Nebuchadnezzar. He is actually made to be the number one chief Magi. All the magicians and all the, all the whatever, they, the wise men of Babylon, they are under Daniel's, Daniel's uh, direction and control. And I would suggest to you that the reason the wise men know to come to Israel is because they know of Daniel's prophecies. They know that, in, that as these kingdoms unfold, that this is going to happen, that they see Kingdom 5 happening in the days of Kingdom 4 of Rome. And as history unfolds, they're able to see that and discern that. And when they come, they know Daniel's prophecies better than the Jews do. And they realize that this is in fulfillment of prophecy, this one. And the thing that, of course, triggers it all is the star because they connect that also with Old Testament prophecies that I'm sure that they learn from David, uh, from Daniel in Daniel's day. And so I would suggest to you that it's because Daniel's influence over the wise men, his influence in, in uh, that part of the world centuries before, that they have this information and they come they come with more than just a guess or a warm feeling. They, they have reason to believe that something is going on in Judah. Not that specific thing, but I do think that is how they knew and why they knew. It's because of Daniel. Okay, back to our text in Daniel. Let me see what time it is. Okay, uh, back to our text in Daniel chapter 7. So I, I suggest to you that the fourth kingdom is in fact Rome. Following on the heels of the Greek kingdom that it overcomes. And back in Daniel 7, in our verse 13, it says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And so the question is, when does this happen? And the first thing I want to draw your attention to in our verse is, Many believe this is going to be the second coming. I'm suggesting to you that this happens, or it's being described here, happens at the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ following his resurrection. And notice that in verse 13, that the one that is in the clouds is going to the Ancient of Days, not from the Ancient of Days. He is going to God. And he is presented before him, the Ancient of Days. And so the whole direction of verse 13 is not of the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the second coming and coming from heaven to the earth. The whole direction of verse 13 is that he is going to the Ancient of Days and he is presented before him. Now look at Acts chapter 1. Keep your place in Daniel. I'm going to flip right back, but Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. Into heaven. And so what we see here is we see 
uh, we see our Lord Jesus Christ uh, ascend up into the clouds and go out of sight as he, as he ascends to heaven. Now, look with me back. Keep your place in uh, Daniel because I want you to flip back to Daniel. And let's look at the next verse, verse 14. And note what it says happens when he was presented, presented before the Ancient of Days. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, with that in mind, turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Because in Revelation chapter 5, we have a continuation of our Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension. So we see him disappear into heaven, but in Revelation 5, we we pick up on what happens when he arrives at heaven. This is the Lord Jesus Christ arriving in heaven. Revelation 5, 5. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll when it's seven seals. And let's pause there for a second. John was crying because there was no one there that was worthy to open the scrolls. But there was one that had suddenly arrived on the scene. There's a new person there in heaven. And this is the one that has conquered. And it is the lion from the tribe of Judah that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne, reading in verse 6, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now let me pause there. That is the ancient of days seated on his throne. Christ is being presented before him. And he takes the scroll from the right hand of the ancient of days as the ancient of days sits on his throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you have ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, pause for a second there. It says, you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, and people and nation. Now flip back to Daniel, verse 14. He was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Does that sound familiar, those two passages between Revelation 5 and Daniel chapter 7? As he stands before the Ancient of Days, I would suggest to you that these are exactly the same things that we see in these texts. The conclusion that we draw, we only have a couple of minutes left. Let me point out a few verses to you, just two actually. Acts 2, 33. This is Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Acts 2, 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, the Lord Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He has been made both Lord and Christ. One other passage, Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm picking out one of about uh, a dozen scriptures that have this same sense and quote the same Old Testament passage. Ephesians chapter 1, let's look at verse, let's let's begin at verse 20. Actually, the last few words of verse 19 say, According to the working of His great might or His great power, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and a power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, that is this age right here in our line, not only in this age, in this time period, but not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things through the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And there are many other passages like this. The book of Hebrews, I think about uh, one, two, three, four, five times in 1 Corinthians and, and uh, several other passages mention this exact same event. And it happens... I would suggest to you in sober history during the, day, the time of what beastly kingdom that is in the days of Rome. And so what we have here in this scene of the Son of Man on the clouds is our Lord Jesus Christ ascending into heaven to be seated at the right hand of heaven, uh, uh, God, the throne of God in heaven, and to receive uh, all authority and all power for this age and every age to come. And so I suggest that he is quite certainly been made King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Any questions or comments about that? Anything at all? It is. That's right, because we've got 500 more years to come before any of these things will be. Okay, anything else? Okay, if not, let's close with a word of prayer.